Hello, you're listening to the Companion Gun Dog Podcast. I'm your host, Grayson Geyer, and with me today, as always, is Emily Shirey. How are you doing, Emily? I'm doing really well, Grayson. How are you doing? I was just going to see if you were going to change it up there. <laughs> I yeah. had to. I thought about it. <laughs> um, It's been, uh, like always, every time I open one of these podcasts, I always talk about how long it's been since the last one. This, though, really may be our longest break. Could be, for sure. I can't remember when we did the last one. Um. You know, always, as usual, busy lives, busy personal lives, busy work lives, um, uh, the holidays, uh, but but really most importantly, I think the thing that's kept me away from this kind of work has been hunting season this year. And I guess that's because I spend what little free time I have um, trying to get out and, and get my own dogs into some birds and get client dogs into birds and share... Uh, my love of upland hunting, specifically woodcock hunting with friends and clients as well. So I've, I've been out with quite a few different people this year and, um, I did not have a bad season. I guess I can put it that way. I'm not sure I'd call it a great season, but it wasn't bad. How about you? Did you get out and hunt? Yeah, I would say same. It was not a bad season. Um, my first season duck hunting, and that was definitely the highlight of this hunting season for me was getting to see Ember retrieve. Wish I would have gotten Blitz and Ember on more Woodcock, but um, definitely prioritized my time in the duck blind. That's It is cool. And I did actually probably more duck hunting this season than I've done in the past, and I enjoyed it more. I have a couple of friends that are... Um, more avid duck hunters than myself and, uh, and got invited along a few times and had a couple of good hunts. And, um, I would say, even though it's been a long, slow burn for me, I, I feel more enthusiastic about duck hunting, uh, right now at the end of this season than I, than I think I ever have. And actually the youth and, um, recently instated, and I'm not sure when it came, came into being, but, uh, veterans, uh, waterfowl days are in February. And so I'm actually going to, uh, take advantage of those and, and try to get out and, uh, and get those two days in, in as well. So there's still some woodcock around. Um, I'd like to get in the woods. I got, a, I got, we're kind of in that transitional phase with, uh, with the current client dogs that I don't think they're going to benefit from taking them in the woods. I really need to get them out, finish shooting some pin raised birds over them and get them ready to go home. So it's going to hang me up for a week or two. Um, but definitely the little break in between, uh, classes, I'm hoping to, to just get out and get these young dogs on them. So yeah, that's, you know, I guess I had some, some interesting specific hunts I could talk about. Is there anything that stands out in your mind? I know you said Ember had her first retrieve, and I think those were all pretty well documented in social mm-hmm. media. Uh, for those of you following Emily at Short Hairs and Shotguns and Horizon Retrievers now. Oh, yes. Thank you. Yep. And so uh, I saw a wood duck, mm-hmm. a mallard. Yep. And a Canada goose. Yep. That's a, I mean, that's like, yeah. it's pretty well-rounded First waterfowl season. season. Yeah. yeah. It was fun. That's cool. Yeah. We got, um, def- I had, I had a, uh, interesting woodcock hunt that ended up, it was, I was going out to scout. Um, and it, you guys were actually hunting. I think you and our friend Josh were hunting the same mm-hmm. day somewhere else, not Bye-bye. finding birds. Yep. Like just across, I mean, within spitting distance of the cover I happened to be in. 
Um, I was having a COVID scare at the moment, so I was off on my own uh, and just had had an exposure and was not feeling well. So kind of decided to to go it alone that day and just keep it to myself. Took Althea only because I took my boat out and I just didn't want to take a bunch of dogs and have a lot of moving parts and uh, ended up having a 22 flush day on Woodcock and, uh, and, and killed a really nice Drake wood duck. Um, uh, in addition that day that we jumped, which is in my opinion, like one of the coolest bonuses of, of hunting woodcock, uh, in the areas I do, which tend to be very low lying swampy areas. I, I see, I don't always get great shots, but on occasion I get really nice shots on, um, on incidental woodcock or wood duck and, in the la- in recent years with with the advancement of like bismuth especially um i've been shooting copper plated bismuth from a company called boss that i've been pretty happy with and uh, number 7s i have i at this point i've done enough pass shooting and testing to feel very comfortable uh knowing that uh keeping my my modified barrel first on my, you know, so my first trigger pull is going to be a modified barrel, bismuth sevens, copper plated bismuth sevens. I'm very confident that I can knock down a wood duck at inside of 50 yards with that, and and we'll take that shot now every time. So that's that's really neat. It's something we couldn't have dreamed of. You know, number one, I I didn't I carried lead for woodcock until until two years ago when this stuff came out, and so now I do that. And what I've really what it's done too, I've I've quit running bells on my pointing dogs. And, um, and then of course having Althea out there, even at tighter range, you know, made, made that opportunity, um, you know, I think, uh, a more regular occurrence for me. So that's cool. I'm excited to kind of keep playing with that, uh, as I, as I go forward, um, maybe get out and paddle around as well. Um, so that kind of brings me to kind of the the next phase of this podcast. And um, I want to answer some questions. We have one listener in particular that is very engaging with us. And and I really appreciate it because he has some very thought provoking questions and, uh, and he's, he's got a unique perspective because he's uh, he, he's very enthusiastic about, about getting out and upon further research, know that he has a Chesapeake Bay Retriever, but he's the guy that turned me on to uh, Mike Gould's book, um, The Labrador Shooting Dog, which we did discuss, um, not at length, but kind of brushed over uh, in in the, uh, a former podcast. And since then, I've actually gone back and dug more into it, and I've really gotten more into the idea of, I guess, what Mike Gould was getting at, or at least his idea of, of a Labrador shooting dog. And I've always been drawn to the lab because of their versatility. And I've, I've said it before on this podcast and others that my friend Ricky Elston told me, you know, once long ago that labs were the most versatile dog on the planet. And, uh, and again, another slow burn, but I, I have come to kind of agree with that sentiment. Now that's, it's not fair to all of our other versatile dogs. I'm still into my versatile pointing dogs, um, you know, but I, I, I definitely feel that if you're going to be a one dog man with a one man dog, lab's the way to go. If you're a hunter of anything, you know, it just, it's, they just are capable 
of doing most things sufficiently. And, uh, and so, and I, I kind of learned more about that this year, just by accident, being out there in the woods without the, and having those contacts, um, uh, having some successful hunts with her alone and, and really enjoying the pace too. Like you have to be a little more on the ball when you're running a flushing dog only. You kind of, you got to be prepared, even if you, you got a good handle on them. Yeah. Um, things happen quick. Uh, Althea's litter from the spring of 21 with a field trial champion from England, a dog named Art Glass Thor, produced some very nice puppies that we've been lucky enough to at least follow, I think, three of them around here. Well, um, Sally. There's Sally that belongs to our friends Sam and Steely over at Three Rivers Land Trust. Cooper. Cooper belongs to our friend Josh. Um, and Wallace. Wallace, we've seen. That's right. I had Wallace in. It belongs to my buddy, Dr. Orr. And then now Ollie. And Ollie is here currently. And I'll tell you what, man. Like, I am pumped about every single one of those dogs. I have not seen a dud in that litter. So, um, so I'm just, I'm thrilled. And so the ones that I've had in have all been smooth and easy to train, enthusiastic, tough enough to handle anything, but uh, easy enough to be around to take them anywhere and to, and they're training machines and they love birds and they love retrieving and they're all environmentally sound and handling their shots and, and everything else and social. So super, super thrilled with that. But I, I say that to, to kind of bring it full circle and, and say that, uh, I know that our friend, uh, Sam with Sally had a lot of successful, um, I say a lot of successful, some successful duck hunts with Sally really um because she engaged her game finding ability it was all about hey we had a cripple mm-hmm. get yeah. over here somewhere and she got in the water and you know she's a young dog she hasn't been force fetched but she has a ton of retrieve desire and would happily go track those birds down i don't think sam lost any of his cripples this year with her um out there in the swamp with him and that's super cool cuz he does a lot of duck hunting he's really gotten he's one of the the folks that have gotten me into duck hunting more um, so very proud of that team. And then Josh hung out with us quite a bit this mm-hmm. year, got his boy Cooper, um, who he's been out day training on a regular basis with us and really has a nice handle on that dog for his age. These dogs are all still under a year of age and, um, enthusiastic retrievers, enthusiastic bird finders. And at least Cooper is really handling cleanly for Josh, even in like states of high drive. And Josh in the last week of Woodcock season, Hmm. got out, found some nice little holes and got Cooper into a bunch of birds. And the last day of the season, he shot a limit with him. So that's super cool. cool. Yep. And then he got, I think he got two with his little boy the day before or a couple of days before. So that's, that's awesome. Um, so yeah, so it, I think it just goes to show number one, um, that, you know, we're proud of that litter that, uh, Althea is, I think reproducing kind of a, a, above her level, um, depending on who she's put with, at least in that litter, uh, I would say Wallace, um, Cooper and Ollie, uh, are all the ones that I've had experience training, like hands-on training. I've seen Sally a little bit. I haven't really gotten to dig into her as much as those other three. And I would say all three of those dogs are probably a little more robust than Althea 
environmentally willing, you know, they don't have her, her softness, but they are calm and easy to be around. And so I'm, you know, I, I, I bred her. I don't think she's over the top soft. I, I, she was definitely within breeding standard for me or I wouldn't have done it. Um, her softness, I think aids me in some things Mm -hmm. because she's just so gentle um, but at the same time, you know, you have to be careful with her. And I would say that all three of these pups of hers uh, would be um, probably more forgiving in a training environment. So that that's one of those. And then two, kind of getting to Landon's point about training or hunting woodcock with flushing dogs, namely labs, and kind of coming back to Mike Gould's shooting dog. So we're using these dogs this way. We're having success this way. We're lucky that we live in an area that gets a decent number of wintering woodcock that on occasion we can get into enough to make a dog with. Um, and uh, I think that is going to, I guess that's a good st- start to a segue to answering Landon's specific training questions. And I know his first one um, was regarding the use of pigeons um, when training flushing dogs. When you don't have access to a lot of wild birds. When you don't have access to a lot of wild birds. So um, just kind of looking at my notes and not going direct, not verbatim on his questions. Uh, he wanted to know that if we could use the concepts or if we could apply the concepts from like the West Gibbon system that we use with our pointing dogs in flushing dogs with pigeons. Um, and I think yes and no. Um, and I would say that, you know, and that also goes for the pointing dog. So I, I don't think I can train a great hunting dog with pigeons. I think I can help dogs become steady. I think I can train advanced concepts in phases with pigeons. Um, and I think that would hold true for flushing dogs as well. Now, if I'm willing to kill pigeons, I can, I can maybe utilize them more to develop some hunting behaviors and use them for some drive building. But for the most part, the way we use pigeons here are mostly going to be homers and launchers. I do, if I need to get a dog comfortable with a launcher, or if I need to take a dog that's become a little bit blasé about launcher and pigeon work because they're not, they're not able to complete the predation sequence most of the time because the bird just flies away and they kind of lose interest. At that point, I'm going to kill a pigeon. Usually I prefer to use my kill pigeons with my pointing dogs in conjunction with my launchers because I'm doing it to create a little more desire around the launcher, if that makes sense. I've used launchers with my flushing dogs, um, just like I've used pigeons with my flushing dogs. But for the most part, we can get away. The great thing about flushing dogs is we're not using launchers and pigeons to develop their flush the way we use launchers and pigeons to develop point in our pointing dogs. So I, I don't lean on that kind of stuff as much. Um, 
it's going to get, it's going to help with steadiness after the flush. But the great thing about a flushing dog is like the more intense they are on the flush, then the more, the faster they get the bird in the air. For us in the labs, I would say most of the labs around here, um, and I, I, and correct me if I'm wrong, cause I, I really can't speak for you and Ember, um, at this point or, or what Envy's going to be, uh, Althea has some point in her. I would not say it's, it's not point the way you would consider think of a pointing dog. It's a flash point. And she usually without any prodding from me, will get the bird up on her own, but she's going to pause. And, and I, it's something I want to get into a little more. I can take advantage of that. So because of Althea's controllability and willingness to restrain herself and drive, I can hit a whistle about the time she goes in there and pauses on that bird and her flashpoint, and that'll check her up. And I can hold her in position while I get everybody else together and then release her to the flush. And I use that a ton on, especially on pin-raised birds. That's not an issue for us on pin-raised birds. I th- in the context of hunting. In the context of hunting, correct. Yeah. I mean, now when I'm using Althea to flush for my pointing dogs, I want her in there and I want the bird in the air as fast as I can. It's... It's for the flushing dog, but, and it doesn't matter. She goes in there and flash points a little bit. She's still stimulating that dog. I, well, I'm using her to get in there and distract my, my pointing dog. And, and that's what her, her job is in, in that regard. Now, if I'm using her while we're hunting, her job is to keep me safe. So I don't have to go flush that thing and I want her to be steady. So she's safe. Um, uh, it, when I'm hunting her alone on Woodcock, she was pausing before she got the woodcock in the air, if they were, the pauses were less and they were less pausey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. She would, I mean, it was a, it was a brief pause and she was so enthusiastic. She would, she was jumping in there pretty quick, but it was still actually, I found it pretty valuable on woodcock because the cover was so bad. It kind of allowed me to move into a better position to shoot. Um, and, and so I, I think there is definitely some utility and a little bit of flashpoint in a flushing dog in those in that specific context now if i had if i was creating dogs just to be flushing dogs i would much prefer hard flushers because i think there's more value in that if i'm out with a hand, with a few guns on a rough shooting type of day um i think specific birds need a hard flush if if you got any birds that are going to run on the ground you better not pause on them um, they're going to, they're going to find a way to evade the gun. Um, if, if they're prepared for the dog, I do think birds that are flushed in a hurry are able to put less thought into escaping the guns and putting, you know, objectives or, or, um, obstacles between, uh, the guns and themselves on the flush. So, so, you know, pheasant and grouse in particular, um, and, and probably woodcock if I was, if I was out there with a handful of guns, I do think hunting alone with a flushing dog, that little pause from Althea really helped me. Now there were times where those birds probably got a little bit of an advantage by being prepared. Um, but I, I, I didn't, I, you know, I was still able to scratch a couple down. Um, so, you know, it, it's whatever. I, I, it's something I'm still not super experienced with, to be honest with you. And I, I've always gone with my pointing dogs. Um, and, and this season was, you know, the times that I was able to get out with my pointing dogs, it was okay. I mean, we, I, you know, it was kind of a mediocre season, so I wouldn't say it was great for developing any do- of my dogs, but the flushing dogs 
need less development than the pointing dog. So I think the success is a little quicker in that regard. Um, that didn't quite wrap up that question about using pigeons. Um, but I, I hope that gives you the idea. I think if you're trying to make a, if you want your, your new flushing dog, number one, you've had a proper bird and a proper gun intro. So we know the dog is not in danger of becoming bird shy and gun shy. When we go out, I think it's really important whether it's wild birds or whether it's pin raised birds with your flusher or with any young new dog, get out there and get them into birds and don't worry so much about the, uh, the, um, manners around their game. You know, don't worry. I'm not, I don't need the dog. I mean, I I'm expecting these dogs to chase. I'm not going to shoot a bird out. I'm not going to shoot an unsafe bird for them. Um, I am expecting them to learn how to work objectives how to manage the wind. I want to see them enthusiastically hunting cover. That's where that stuff develops. They have to get them into birds and do that. Us in America have the distinct advantage of being able to train remotely. Um, and so as opposed to limiting chase and checking, and this is the same with my pointing dogs, and I've said this before on this podcast, and worrying about cre- you know, developing manners as I go with my young dogs, as my friend, and I actually quoted him this morning in my Instagram post, my friend Eddie talks about leaving a lot of dog in his dogs um, as he's developing his young dogs. And that means I let them chase. I let them, if, if my flushing dogs are catching pen raised birds on the ground, I don't care. They're getting there fast. They're getting there, you know, and, and, and they're becoming driving monsters, you know, and I can taper that back when the time comes. So, when I'm making that transition, when I've got my strong dog that needed those loose birds on the ground to develop the intensity, um, and, and to, uh, kind of shake off the sensitivity, maybe environmental sensitivity that could follow them into cover or whatever, and, and make them be less of a, of a hard driving dog than I want. Um, I'm leaving it a free for all when it's time to taper it back, I'm going to start with chase. And so, yes, in that regard, I'm using some of the principles used in the West Gibbons method that you might find in the book training with Mo on my pointing dogs. I'm starting by then this, and this is not, again, it's, you know, this is to me, it's a, it's a, uh, ideologically similar thing to the West Gibbons method, but it's not that specifically, right. But it's removing the chase first. And whether that's on a recall or whether that's on a sit whistle, what I want is the dog to begin to anticipate no longer chasing that bird. I, I want to be careful with that with my flushing dog because I, I, if I have a little bit of pause or I have a little bit of point, when I remove the anticipation of the chase, I can extend that. Um, so for me, I'm shooting a lot more of my birds or I'm clipping wings and, and encouraging chase a lot more once they've shown me their control than I will in my pointing dogs. Once my pointing dogs are steady and I'm comfortable that they're re- going to retrieve and I'm comfortable that they're intense and enthusiastic, I'm rarely giving those dogs retrieves in training. Most of those dogs are going to watch birds fly off. Flushing dogs, on the other hand, I'm shooting a, many more birds for them in training because I want them to, I want them to be balanced a little bit 
further forward. I want the field to be tilted a little more downhill for my flushing dogs than my pointing dogs, if that makes sense. I want them less cautious. I want them more bombastic. I want them more enthusiastic. I want them uh, crashing cover, chasing birds, feeling intense. And then if I need to check them up, I have the power to do so. I have the tools at my disposal to do so. And, uh, and I'm, and I know what it takes to do that. Is that, am I, am I on the right track so far? I know I'm chatting a lot here. Yeah. Um, something else that Landon asks or mentions is that his biggest challenge is trying to find how to get his dogs actively hunting birds afield with so few wild birds. And so with my experience having a flushing dog, this has been very different for me going from Blitz, who is very independent. I never even have to acknowledge that she's out hunting. She's always going to be doing something to Ember, who wants to default to me, to heal, to engagement if she's not finding birds. And it was nice that I got to see you go through that with Althea when Althea was young. Um, And with flushing dogs in the beginning, especially with like what we do with Althea and Ember, they're so used to being in heel with us. It can be difficult for them to gain a little bit of independence to keep hunting if they're not finding something right away. And so you'll see (laughs) both of them go, you know, three feet in cover, come back out. Well, I didn't find anything looking at us like what now, Um, which is very different from a pointing dog. And it's a lot more management and getting them in cover, in cover, in cover, in cover. Um, And I will say, in my experience, the best thing that's helped Ember in that regard is just taking her preserve hunting. And the more contact she finds, especially out and away from me, the more enthusiastic she's been to keep looking. Um, And so by the end of this season, she did a handful of preserve hunts this year. And by the end of this season, she was starting to range better and stay out. And I wasn't having to constantly ask her to get into cover. Um, and that just came from experience preserve hunting, which is nice with a flushing dog because there's very little risk involved in preserve hunting. Other than safety. I mean, for sure. <laughs> I mean, risk involved in, you know, bad things happening sure. as far as a training standpoint, whereas, you know, with our pointing dogs, too yep. many, too much preserve hunting with weak birds will lead to some nasty habits, but you don't have to worry about that like you do That's right. with pointing dogs, with flushing dogs. Yeah. I mean, if you're, you know, if you come up on a dog, a bird that just doesn't want to get in the air and, you know, I think there's some real advantage to it. You know, every once in a while you just get one of those birds that's, that maybe gets up in a way a little bit, but for whatever reason has an injury from the Johnny house or whatever, and they are unable to actually escape hard. Those chases, like where you see the, you know, especially your flusher, like, you know, jump in the air and almost mm-hmm. catch the bird and then chase it around. And I mean, those things, they, those are good for your young dogs. And when they happen, we, we set those up on purpose here, you know? So I would say, you know, those flushing dogs, um, for me, you know, and this and this is going to fly in the face of some traditional, especially, you know, I've got my British friends are cringing when they hear me talk <laughs> like this, right? Because they're, you know, it's, it's, this is number one, they don't ever, I was told to never by my great friend and fantastic dog trainer, never put my, um, my lab in a hedge, right? Never flush with them, right? They're there to walk at heel and be quiet and, and retrieve game. And they're masters at that. And that really is their first job. And for us, that's our dog's first job. And so, you know, we start our dogs as retrievers and then we allow them to become shooting dogs. Um, and I, and I think that's important. Now, now I say that when they're puppies, 
I do want them in game, whether even if I was just going to have them be a field trial retriever and never wanted them chasing game, I really like my young dogs to to develop a bloodlust. And I've used that phrase before. I really like it, um, whether they're going to be retrievers, whether they're going to be flushers, whether they're going to be pointers. I want them to hate birds and, and to have that be their singular focus in life. And then once I feel like I've accomplished that, then we can start putting the rules to them. And then the ones that are really going to be focused on retrieving will probably never get much of that in the future. My, you know, Althea and the dogs we're going to use as these utility type dogs, they're going to get more of that, but we're definitely going to put more rules to it. Um, but it, it, I think when we start with the idea that I want to create those, the, a bird hater, um, I think that helps getting back to Landon's question. I think that helps develop hunting dogs. Mm-hmm. If if that if the if their sole focus is finding is and killing and chasing and you know whatever with birds, then that uh that's going to suck them into the field. They're going to go out more enthusiastically in search of game. Um, so getting to your point with the preserve, I think that's our. I think for a flushing dog, that's our our greatest asset. And I think you know what I would do if I was maybe in Landon shoes or anybody else that's considering this kind of thing. Hey, put your early training in. Your dog is going to get sticky. It's not going to want to get away from you. It's okay. Then there's going to be a time where we're going to have to show them it's okay to get into the field. Maybe go to the preserve a few times. If you can, and we've talked about this in the past, if we can find a proprietor of a preserve that's willing to let us come out on a weekday, just get a handful of birds, just take those bird walks. And the great news for your flushers is you're, you can shoot those birds. You can clip wings and let them chase and catch. Use a blank gun just to associate the, the sound. Doesn't really matter, in my opinion, as long as I'm not working on steadiness at that point. I'm not going to try to combine my steadiness training and my love of game type work. I'm not, I'm not starting steadiness until I've got all the dog in there that I want until I, you know, and, and so and for us, just for people listening for us, that's probably what, what, maybe eight to 12 months old for most dogs. Yeah. And that's eight to 12 months in considering the fact that we have access to that's birds our and personal dogs that are getting a lot of work. Yep, they're getting a ton of work. And so, and I always tell folks like once a week, isn't too little. Um, and three times a week, isn't too much. You know, I, so I'm, I usually will not stick my dog unless I need it. Like Althea gets in birds every day of her life, <laughs> you know, for the most part. Uh-huh. But that's because I, I need her. Um, it, it, with my young dogs, you know, I think three days a week is, is that's that's fair. You know, you, they're getting enough time to, to think about it in between. And there's often times where I'm going to restrict the number of birds they get because I think that learning kind of ceases at a certain number. You know, at some point you're just kind of creating this raw emotional thing that's out there bird drunk and going wild. So, so, you know, a handful of birds, um, it really twice a month wouldn't be too little if you're doing it, you know, if if it's, it's hard to have access. I mean, but anything less than that, you're probably not creating and you're not, you're not going to get as much as you need. So, so, and I know that costs money. I mean, it's not, it's not super cost effective, but you don't need a ton of birds every time you go out three to five birds, three to five contacts, you know, that's, that's not bad. You can, so I would say with the right, um, with the right preserve owner, decent pricing, you should be able to get out for a hundred to 200 bucks a month, just in bird and time out in the field and, and get plenty of work in with your dog on birds you intend to kill every time you go out. 
Um, it's obviously better if you've got, I mean, if you live in a place that has access to, to wild birds and you can just get out and put your dog in them, boy, that's awesome. You're lucky. And in that regard, we've talked about it in the past. We're kind of lucky, right? Because some days I go out and I get blanked and some half seasons I go out and get blanked. And then every once in a while I go out and I'm in way too many birds and I'm really not getting much out of it because there's too many contacts. Um, you know, so, but I mean, we, we have them and I, I won't, I'll, I'm not going to look a gift horse in the mouth. I'll take Woodcock when and where I can find them. That said too, if I think you're, you've got that well-controlled dog that's beginning to get out and you're getting it into birds. It's becoming enthusiastic, but you don't feel like you got all the oomph you'd want. Pheasants are great for that. You know, um, pheasants that want to run a little bit. And and once they start challenging your flushing dogs and your, your flushing dogs start understanding that a little bit and they start getting in a hurry to get to them so that they don't escape, that will take those dogs out a little bit. So say you've got a dog, you've been working on quail, and you feel like you just need them over the hump a little bit on in the enthusiasm department. That's where I, I might go mix. Yeah, even if it's just mixing one or two pheasant in, and when you go out, give that a try. See if that takes them out. Chucker, you never know what you're going to get. I always find, like this time of year, it just seems like they do not want to get off the ground. When they get off the ground, they fly hard. Um, otherwise, they're going to sit still. I have had them like as soon as you move into springtime, they're like they put their running shoes on and they go crazy. And if so, if you have good strong running chucker, they're not bad for a flushing dog. But I would say. You know, like the ones we've got right now, like all of our point, our flushing dogs would just catch all these birds on the ground where they, where they sit. And, um, I've had friends that tried to keep their flushing dogs from catching birds on the ground. I don't see value in that. I don't think you're helping your dog by creating a pause, you know, or doing, or, or at best admonishing them and at worst punishing them from catching dogs on the ground or for catching dogs on the ground. So I don't suggest doing that. If the dog, if your flushing dog catches birds on the ground, that's because your birds are bad, not because your dog is bad. That so, um, you know, so, and, and, and that's, if you can get feral pigeons, they can work that way. I would say carded pigeons for a flushing dog would probably work pretty right. good. So looking at that training with Mo, that's one way I think you could get what you're looking for in terms of hunt pattern and desire and things like that with pigeons mm-hmm. or even just well dizzied pigeons. Um, launchers, once you were into launcher territory, you're in steadiness territory. And so I don't, the, where I use the launchers um, with my flushing dogs, a lot of times is going to be upwind. So I'm not, I don't really want my flushing dogs to come in from downwind of a, a launcher and get close because I don't think it mimics a full contact flush. Um, I think the only thing you do in that situation is kind of run a risk of, uh, of a ca- catastrophic launcher to the face type thing <laughs> scenario. And, you know, if your dog's robust enough, it probably won't matter, but it's not worth finding out. You know, it's not worth damaging your equipment or your dog or spooking your dog. So... So for me personally, where I'll, I'll, I'll use the pigeons and launchers in, in regards to steadiness, like early conceptual stuff is walk-ups a lot. So I'm like walking into the field, bird launches, dog, I set the dog on its butt. And it's just teaching the dog, hey, that's a hup to flush kind of deal, right? And then I can, I can do that from upwind as well in any regard. Even if I've turned the dog loose, I just need to be aware it's, I need to get that bird in the air before it becomes a proximity issue. Um, I can, I can also accomplish that by throwing birds a lot of times and having my, my help throw birds. Um, and then 
you know, once I can control my dog's chase um, on pigeons, then I will take it into full contact flushes again with uh, with game birds and just start controlling that chase. Once they begin to anticipate that, then they stop and watch it fly off. And then I just, if I need, if they're not sitting to that already, which many will, then I'll just kind of make sure that happens. And voila, I got sit to flush and steady. You know, I can teach my steady to wing shot and fall or steady to shot and fall, the same as I would do with my pointing dogs, away from odor. They're, the first time they they kind of are uh, introduced to those concepts, it's always going to be remotely. So there's going to be somebody out there throwing birds and they're not going to be allowed you know, to go get that bird unless they're steady. Um, then there people are out shooting birds and it's not all coming when they got a nose full of bird and they're high as a kite and they're chasing and all that stuff. This is all happening, you know, remotely and out, out of the, uh, availability of that odor. So hopefully, I mean, that was a lot of talk. I, hopefully I made sense there and you get the idea that, Hey, when you want to you want when you want to make your dog enthusiastic about hunting, wild birds are great. If you got them, pin raised birds are fine. If you got them, there's no, you're, I don't think there's a ton of advantage for your flushing dogs in, in regards to wild versus pin raised birds. So that's one great thing. Another reason why if you're a, a you know, especially a, a, a novice is not the right word, but if you're an enthusiast, that's not a professional and not somebody that's got all of their time to dump into dogs, flushing dogs, whether it be a cocker, a springer or a lab, um, or any other number of flushing breeds. Uh, I don't know why I'm using my hands so much when we're talking today. <laughs> any, any number of those breeds, right? Like they just, I think from start to finish, you can get out there and be hunting with those dogs effectively faster than you can a pointing dog. Absolutely. Um, that being said, especially with your springers and your cockers, um, they don't, they're not always like, I, my friend Robin has a great line regarding this. He said, you know, he said his labs are born half trained and all his spaniels will die that way. <laughs> right? And I love them. God bless them. I love spaniels. They are awesome, but man, they're, they can be a handful. And, uh, and if you, if you do get them in the habit of chasing a lot, you might be spending more time, um, coaxing them into not chasing. So uh, there's, so there's definitely value in the verbiage you hear in, in, in the British traditions or in the American traditions of spaniel training of don't allow a ton of chase. You know, you don't need a whole bunch of drive building with those dogs. Um, and you don't really need a whole bunch of drive building in that regard, but with labs, but I think labs definitely from a cooperation perspective, genetically, that's, that's their, that's their major and my, my, that is their number one attribute for being a great dog to be with in the field or in the home or whatever. A good lab, in my opinion, is a picture of cooperation. They just want to be with you. They want to work with you. They want to work in tandem with you. Every, the whole world revolves around you. Spaniels are like really, really into you, but they're also really, really into doing their own thing, (laughs) you know, and, and like, you know, they want you, they want you to be engaged with them. Labs want to be engaged with you, if that makes sense. So hopefully, uh, we knocked that out. Um, Anything to add to that? I know we didn't really get into spaniels very much, and they do deserve more talk because, and I've got a couple of cockers here, or had recently a couple of cockers here, one right now um, that I'm finishing up for a guy. He's an awesome dog. He's a super, super sweet dog. In drive, he's a, he's a handful. When he when there's birds around, he is not the same dog he is when it's when we're playing with tennis balls and stuff. Um, and it's and that's a lot of fun to watch. And he's a super effective dog, and he's going to make this guy a great companion 
gun dog and he's going to kill a lot of birds over him and he's going to love living in the house with him. But, um, a lab, he is not as far as cooperation is concerned. So we'll, we'll get back to that one day. Um, another question Landon asked, uh, was regarding trailing foot scent to planted birds. Um, and he mentioned like it was, he was planting pigeons for his dog. It only took the dog like three pigeons to figure out, Hey, I just need to track this guy to the birds. That's, it happens. It's a part of this. Um, something that I picked up, it's something that's, I mean, it's very, it's a very important part of being a detection dog trainer that I carry with me. Uh, it, it doesn't just color the way I train bird dogs. It's a, it's a foundation. I ideal is there are constants and variables and there's only one real constant that I want my dog to have access to. in in regards to detecting birds and that's the bird. Um, I use launchers every time my dog finds a launcher there won't be a bird in it. Um, every time my dog finds a bird, it won't be in a launcher. The launcher is not going to give him the feedback the bird is going to give him if it's not there. So is he going to be, or is she going to be drawn to a bush that may have a launcher sitting in an empty? Sure. Is there going to be a residual odor there? Sure. Is that dog going to sit there and false point that launcher if it's my dog until kingdom come while I'm out working the field? No, it's not. All right. It's going to be exposed to enough empty launchers in the field that that's not going to be an issue. Other people are going to plant my birds. I'm not a glove. I don't wear gloves when I plant birds. Um, I hunt wild birds and I, I put a lot of time into hunting wild birds. And so the bird is the constant. If it's wild or whether it's pin raised, there are certain parts of the scent signature that are going to be variable. They're going to be in the way the dog is certainly going to associate, associate them with a bird, but we're going to prove those as well by just leaving them in the field. I walk everywhere I go out here. And so I, and I work in, I got 10 dogs on a chain gang almost all the time back here. And I'm swapping more dogs into that thing. If my dogs are trying to foot track foot scent to the bird, they're going to be less successful than they are going to be successful. If they just air scent, if they work, if they work birds the way they should get on the leeward side of objectives and see if check it. And if there's nothing there, keep moving. And if they smell a bird, go, go investigate further. And if they really lock into odor saturation, then do their job, whether it be pointing or flushing. Um, that that's what it is. I leave. I, I want to take a young dog whether I'm training them to detect narcotics, explosives, or birds, and I'm going to start them in a sterile environment with very few distractions. My old dogs are going to be in a messy environment. There's going to be gear laying everywhere. There's going to be odor everywhere. And the only thing that matters, the only thing that will consistently reinforce that behavior is making contact with source odor, whether it be narcotics explosives or game, if that makes sense. So I didn't not spending a whole ton of time on that. It doesn't matter to me. Yeah. I'm going to plant birds off of four wheelers. I'm going to plant them by foot. I'm going to, sometimes I'm going to dizzy them a little harder and set them into cover. Sometimes I'm going to ride by and barely dizzy them at all and toss them into cover. And sometimes I'm going to encourage them to just fly off and we're going to go hunt them. 
Um, but the only thing that's ever going to matter is that bird. And so, I, you know, what I would say is if you catch yourself, if you notice your dog tracking your foot scent, then go to the preserve. Have somebody else plan for you. You know, if you have the opportunity, it doesn't have to have you all the time, just once in a blue moon. Show them a different picture. Take them to different areas. Wear different shoes. Drive your four-wheeler. Plant, you know, drive your truck if as long as wherever you're you have permission to do that on the on the land you're setting it on. But at the end of the day, you know, um you're you know, you're always gonna have those associated odors that those associate, you know, that that general picture it's gonna you can't avoid those those things that need to be proofed. And the way you proof those is just simply don't let them be the constant part of the scent signature. Change things up from time to time. Hopefully that makes sense. Um, and then lastly, he just asked us to talk about Woodcock. We've done that a lot already in this episode. Um, that Woodcock, I have, I have, um, very romantic notions about Woodcock. <laughs> But mostly because that's what I have access to here. Whether it be, you know, if you live in Oklahoma and you hunt wild quail, if I was, if this, if it was 60 years ago here, and I'll tell you, this year we did, we found a couple, I found a couple of coveys, um, wild coveys of quail, and two in one day once. Now, I wasn't hunting them that day. I was just scouting for them that day. Um but then we went back and we found one of those coveys on a hunt day. Emily was with me, which was awesome. Uh, if I had access to those birds in this setting more, Woodcock, I see, would be a trash bird. <laughs> <laughs> you know, probably never for me because I think they give a dog valuable bird work. But man, you know, quail or wild bob whites are, they're a whole. They're a whole different thing, but they just don't, unfortunately, they don't exist here um, the way they have historically, and uh, and we certainly miss them, and we wish they would come back. But I think at this point, I think I recognize, you know, I, I used to be very enthusiastic about conservation and bringing back the Bob White when I was younger, and I think I recognize now at this point the differences in culture and general, like, society at a, at a societal level, and but especially land use. Um, this state does not look the way it did in 1930, 40, 50. Um, it's, you know, we, we have suburbs, we have, uh, cow pastures, farming practices are, are different today. I don't think we're getting it back. And I used to be sad about that, and now I'm not. I just recognize it is what it is. It's a it's the way the world has gone. If I want to hunt wild bob whites, I need to go to where they have real good habitat and pay the money, put in the effort, do whatever it takes. Um, they they no longer belong. We don't live in the old South, you know, and and so they don't belong to me anymore. But I do have the woodcock, and I have the ability to hopefully you know, put my time, effort and money towards concert, conserving the areas, hunter access in, uh, promoting hunter access in areas where we can get on them publicly around here. And, you know, and they've become more popular in the last three to five years, really, since you've been with me here. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you recognize it. I mean, gosh, man, it's yeah. And so, um, part of me 
hates that. I don't want to share them with people. And I, and I tell you, I like, I'm, I do believe that I'm seeing the effects of pressure on public land. Um, I used to be able to pretty much when I first started hunting woodcock count on finding them in specific covers. Some of those covers have become very popular with other woodcock hunters. And some of that's my fault. I, I took people before and I don't, I still don't know how I feel about it. You know, I, I want to promote the sport. I think, I think game species that are hunted are game species that are conserved. People care about them. They put their money into them. They put their time and their effort into them. So I want people to hunt woodcock. I also want people to stay the hell out of my covers. Woodcock <laughs> right? somewhere other than North Carolina. Yeah. Well, hunt them in North Carolina. Just don't get to my spot. My public land spots that are the few areas that they actually settle around exactly. here. Right. So, you know, but we, but that, I mean, some of that stuff I say in jest, some of it, I think we do need, like, I, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I think we need to be very careful though, about the amount of pressure these birds are seeing in some of our public areas, because our, our riparian buffers on our larger waterways are, are they're popular areas for woodcock to, to come through. They're popular areas for woodcock to winter. They also happen to be places because of the nature of that land that are often used as public land land that's accessible to hunters and there's not much of that stuff so i do think that there's a potential i'm not i don't have any research to back this up but i do think there's a potential for to 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 hurt woodcock populations with the amount of pressure they're seeing on some of these public areas because they're specific they're very very specific types of cover and there's not a ton of it in this at least in this part of the state so so if you're out there and you're in the southeast and you're listening to me just i mean it's something to mill over like i'm not i'm not saying one way or the other i'm not telling anybody that they shouldn't hunt them i just think we need to probably as as this sport becomes more popular as that as that game bird becomes more popular to hunters in the southeast it's something we should put some thought into um you know, so there's my, my spiel from a conservation perspective. I do think they're a great dog. I think they're a great bird for sport. Um, you know, I, I, I've heard many people say, and people that I would consider experts say that, that hunting pressure on a large scale is not affecting their, um, uh, population at all in comparison to habitat loss. So if you are out there and you are hunting these birds, um, I don't know the answer. I don't know the right conservation organizations. I'm a huge supporter and an enormous believer in the mission of Three Rivers Land Trust, which is local to my area and does a lot to conserve woodcock habitat and to manage habitat in general. So if you live in my, in their 15 county area, that would be where I start first. They're they're always, they're going to get most of my, the majority of my conservation energy and the majority of my conservation bucks go to three rivers land trust because they are the real deal supporters and the money stays here. Now that said, some of these national organizations I think are good. I, I mean, DU gosh, for waterfowl, you, anybody that says DU has not done good stuff for waterfowl is outside of their head. Now, they may not be helping us here in North Carolina a ton locally. We do give a lot of money as a state to DU, and I think there probably is an imbalance 
in regards to the amount of money we give that organization as a state and, and what happens in this state as a result of those dollars. But that being said, where's the most bang for the buck happening? And it's probably happening in the Prairie Pothole region. It's probably happening, you know, in, in some of those large, you know, plus the, the, the dollars go further in those areas, you know? And so I, I don't hate on them. I, and I, I don't know the answer. Uh, I, I know rough grouse society kind of gets, gets a lot of the same type of criticism from us. Um, it's a little different when we're talking specifically about grouse because they're not migratory, but our woodcock are. So I'd love to see some habitat projects. Maybe, you know, this, is a, uh, I'm still a member of the rough grouse society and I pay, hey, and I, I don't really consider myself a chapter member anywhere locally. Um, maybe that's something we should look at. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. But I would love to see them pay more attention to the Southeast, specifically regarding the woodcock, less so the grouse. Now, would I love to see grouse come back in the mountains? Yes. Do I recognize the challenges um, that, that that we're faced with in that regard? Yeah, that's a tough hill. That's a big, that's a big one to fight. Um, but you know, people care less about. Old swampland down here in in the low in the you know in the flatlands. So you know maybe that's maybe that's something we could work on. So there, I guess. Okay, that's it. I'll, I'll get off my my soapbox, <laughs> my conservation soapbox on woodcock. But uh, but any of you guys that are out there in in my neck of the woods in the southeast, you know maybe even the south central area. I guess I don't. Know, I guess Texas is still considered the southeast. I don't know, but um. As this as this sport becomes more popular, maybe we all need to get together and start thinking a little more about what what our responsibilities are uh, in the southern covers um, for this bird. So, um, if you if you got any thoughts on that, shoot me a message. I probably won't do anything with it, but it'll be, <laughs> it'll be nice to get. Um, I'm, uh, let's see what else what else do we have to talk about? Anything in particular? Well, we talked about our hunting season. We've talked about flushing dogs and labs we've kind of gotten into some uh, uh specific questions from landon and we are moving in on an hour so i guess in closing maybe think of what there is to come in i mean we're in february already so it's not like new year's resolution time right <laughs> um but but there are things I, I think specific goals i'd like to see for myself personally, for the business, as a dog trainer professionally uh, in the coming year, I would like to, I'd like to compete, not necessarily more, but I'd like to gain some focus in competition. I don't know what that means yet, you Mm -hmm. know, and so I've got Althea and you're going to be a big part of my plans for Althea in the future because you're my my retriever pro now. <laughs> so I expect her to close the year out with a grand champ. Uh, finished title. Yeah. Finished yeah. title, whatever you call it. We'll be working Take her to the that. grand. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. And that's should be easy considering yeah. she's got a litter, hopefully going to be coming in this spring. So that's another, <laughs> another thing we have coming. We are, I think we've settled on uh, a stud for Althea for the spring. Um, and that's a dog named Mitchell rivers, red man. Uh, Cecil. Cecil is his call name. It belongs to Tracy Hayes uh, from Quail Hill. Quail Hill is that Elkin somewhere up there mm-hmm. up in the uh huh state road. Yeah, state yeah, somewhere up in north, kind of the foothills, northern foothills of North Carolina. Um, well, well respected trainer, 
um, with some dogs that lines that we really put some research into. Mm-hmm. So I'm not really veering away f- from British dogs. This is still in keeping with what my objectives are, but this dog just doesn't happen to be a Brit- British lineage, but he's got, he hits exactly what I'm looking for in regards to a stud dog, which is calm out of drive, easy to be around, fun to be around, good natured dog. Um, that does the work exceptionally well when, when in drive, uh, he's, he's an accomplished HRC dog. Um, and, uh, and Emily went up to, to spend some time and get her hands on him a little bit for me and came back with a glowing report. So this is what we're, this is, this is the direction we're going in this spring and I'm excited about it. Yeah. He's a, um, Hammer and Hank's son. Yep. Who's the another stud that we liked and looked at quite a few of his offspring and I think it'll be a really nice match for Althea and I'm really excited about it. Me too. So and we're I'm I'm broadening my perspective, at least as a lab guy. You know, I I I love the idea of a British lab. That said, we don't have access to a lot of them here. Um and also I, as a dog trainer, have a real problem when I can't just put my hands on a dog. And so, and what I think I, the more I thought about it, the more I realized, like, I'm not willing to forsake that just to have from a marketing perspective, the ability to call it a British dog, you know, for all intents and purposes, I'm getting what I want and I get my, and I get the opportunity to, to be around the dog, to see them. And I think there are some great American dogs that are looked over. I think the HRC program is an awesome program that promotes the type of dog we're looking Mm -hmm. for. A good hunting dog with a lot of the kind of the intangible attributes or intangible attributes of a great hunting dog, the ability game finding and all that, but they also need to be mellow and calm, at least manageable at the line. And I think, uh, um, you know, uh, quote unquote American dogs, you know, are, are, are saddled with an unfortunate reputation of being too crazy. There's not, just one American dog. <laughs> There's a <laughs> there lot. There couldn't be more of a variation in American labs. Yeah, we got we breed more of them here than they do in England by a long shot, and and we have a, uh, in all honesty, um, a much deeper, especially from a wild fowling, water fowling perspective, culture um, mm-hmm. than pretty much anywhere in the world, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I could be wrong. I know that there are people that love to hunt ducks in other places, especially Canada. But I mean, that's. You know, just another big northern state. <laughs> so, so, but yeah, I mean, labs, labs are about as thoroughly American a dog as there is, even if they're not from America. You know, and so I, I don't, I don't want to ever discount what's here in front of us. And I will go out, and if I find the right dog, I'm gonna I find it where I find it. And so I think that's happened here and I'm really excited about this. So those of you, I'll get that information up on my website. Those of you that may be interested in one of those pups, I'm excited for that. What else we got? Um, summertime is going to be here before you know it. I'm really ready. I cannot wait for the cold, wet stuff to be done. Um, Me too. I've got one more class of bird dogs in the spring that we'll be doing bird work with before we pick up our May force fetch water work camp. Um, so that's exciting. Uh, there we, we will stay in, in, you know, we've got our friends that are 
working towards their NAVDA objectives out there. We'll continue to support, um, and I'll probably still be involved in some of that moving forward. But, um, you know, I, I don't, uh, I'm excited too, because there's been a little bit of growth or there's a little bit of momentum in the UKC pointing dog field trial system. Um, congratulations to Dominic, mm-hmm. um, the puddle hound that was hired on as their field tri- field trial hunt test manager. Um, he came out to our trial in December. I just got back from a wild bird Bob White trial in southwest Georgia um, that was hosted by the Southeast Pointing Dog Club and got my teeth absolutely kicked in. <laughs> it was horrible. Uh, it was just, it was like never got above freezing. The wind was blowing 30, 40 miles an hour half the time. Uh, the birds were not having any of it with us being in the field with them. Um, it did settle down a little bit Sunday morning enough for a few contacts to happen, but it still, it was just really challenging, really frustrating. I took some client dogs down and, and, uh, and, you know, no excuses, you, you know, you, but, but it was, it was challenging. We came home with Reggie you got a pass. So we did come home with one, Aww. one ribbon. That was nice. Um, and I love that dog. She's exciting. New, newcomer. We will have a trial here. Um, I think it's March 5th and 6th, March 5th and 6th. That's right. And so that'll be, I could be wrong, but I believe this is the seventh annual John Yao oh. Memorial field trial. Um, if it's not the seventh, it's the sixth, then it's only because I think we may have missed a year in there somewhere. From COVID. Or yeah. Something. But, but, uh, you know, it's something I'm really proud of personally. Um, I, I, the landowner here, uh, Seth is, is been so generous to me and this is something that I hope is meaningful to him and his family. Um, and, and it's, uh, it's, it's a nod to his father who was a great man, um, and did so much for our local community and, and he's the reason we're here on these beautiful grounds and, and I'm happy to share that with, with folks and come out and if you're interested, come out and check, check out the trial. Hopefully it's a good one. Um, and I think it will be. So I think that's all I got for the foreseeable future. I am working on a snake aversion date for April. So, um, I'll try to get that out as soon as possible. Anything? Um, just a few things. Grayson's schedule is really filling up. So if you're interested in training for the fall, I need to know ASAP. I think you have maybe a kennel spot or two in September and you have three kennel spots for November and that's going to fill up or you have three garage spots for November and that'll fill up fast. So if, especially if you're interested in the companion gun dog program, um, definitely reach out sooner rather than later. Don't wait. And I guess if anyone has any input on future podcasts, let us know. This has been fun um, to interact with Landon like this. And if you ever have any suggestions on content you'd like us to talk about, definitely let one of us know. Yep. And for Landon, uh, I did get your message regarding mud. And for those of you that don't know, mud is a dog that I, I bred. It was the very first litter of gun dogs that I ever bred with my um my best bird dog ever, Ella, who's still living on the couch here. Um, and Mud is a very special dog with a very special story. And I do plan to cover that at some point. Um, and maybe it may be the next episode. It may be an episode or two down the road. But I do want to I want to tell that story. And, and I do thank Landon for um, for that mention. I think it was a comment on a Facebook post or something like that. So so. Landon, I know you're out there listening. Thanks. Thanks a lot, man. I know mm-hmm. we're not always prompt in response to you on email, but 
uh, we appreciate your, your feedback and, um, and your engagement. And, uh, again, anybody else out there that's interested, you know, shoot us a line. We'll try to get something out for you. Hey listeners, Nick Larson here, host of the Bird Shop Podcast. As fans of this show, you may be interested in the conversations on the Bird Shop Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting, from upland birds and their habitat and conservation, to the shotguns, bird dogs, and gear used to pursue them. Whether you're a seasoned upland hunter or just getting started and wanting to learn more, I interview a wide range of guests, each with their own unique perspective and valuable experience to share. If you're on the hunt for more upland hunting conversation, please consider subscribing to the Bird Shop Podcast today. Thank you.